This is a talk about models of obesity. Uh, the starting point for that is that all models are simplifications of reality and are therefore wrong. They are, however, among the most fundamental instruments of science and are useful in constructing formal systems that will not produce theoretical consequences that don't contra contradict empirical reality. Models of obesity do mostly representational work for the understanding and prediction of almost any cause and effect relationship, and they vary widely in their range and complexity. Predictions or other statements drawn from models mirror or map the real world only in as far as they are demonstrated to hold true. To understand obesity models, it's important to consider some general principles that govern the development and use of models more generally. Odd thing is, until very recently, there were no general theories of models. Tom Ritchie is probably one of the few people that's attempted to uh, put this right. After investigating the methodological, operational and epistemological aspects of scientific modelling, he has offered a range of criteria for what a general theory of modelling should contain. This includes having operational definitions and employing generality from which properties can be abstracted that can show how models do their work. If you don't know how a model does, it work, does its work, it isn't transparent and therefore it's in a way already black boxed and you can't use it in a, as a device for thinking or replicating ways of thinking. This is especially true when you build models for, for scientific investigation. So the criteria that Ritchie put forwards include the provision of a framework for the successful application of different modelling methods for hypothesis production and of common modelling language and terminology. If we're not talking about the same thing, how can you possibly do something that's going to be replicable? In addition, models should be operational and not merely representational. So in the realm of obesity, models of energy balance should, for example, be able to describe the dynamics of energy balance and not be merely static representations. They should be able to say, well, how does this really work and not just describe what's happening? Um, there should also be instruments for hypothesis and theory generation. The operational definition of a model should include sets, a set of properties or parameters which show it how, how it does its work. In obesity science, this might involve mapping cause and effect relationships in something like appetite regulation, for example. It should also be possible to test the applicability of a modelling method by relating its methodological limits to the property of the object that's being modelled. This could be done, for example, when comparing econometric models of different food taxation regimes on energy intake. Obesity models should strive for common modelling language and terminology, as, for example, in the use of epidemiological data in econometric modelling of obesity. As I've said, different approaches to obesity employ a wide range of models. It can be animal models, human models which employ physiological, genetic, epidemiological, economic, psychological, geographical, biocultural, social, complexity, and so on. The list is only one that keeps on expanding. That is, every time there's a new way of thinking about something, every time a new discipline weighs into the study of obesity, they bring with it 
uh, with them their own particular model of, of how the world looks from their perspective. So the risk is in, in modeling obesity, as more disciplines weigh in, so different models start to uh, uh, start to compete and you've no idea. It becomes very difficult anyway to, to know which ones are, are, are truly important and which ones are less important in the scheme of things relative to each other. So obesity models vary, as all models do, according to their specification, their directionality, causality that is, the extent to which they can be quantified, the extent to which they are relational to other models and, and, and the extent to which uh, they connect different ways of thinking. <laughs> Variables in any model might be internally specified. They might contain a well-defined range of ordered or non-ordered values or states, or they can be unspecified and treated as black boxes. Furthermore, connections between variables may be directed or non-directed, and the relationships between them may be expressed as either quantified or non-quantified ways. So they can show a direction, they can not show a direction, they can show all kinds of relationships. The relationships between the variables can be mathematical, they can be probabilistic, that is statistical, they can be quasi-causal, implying influence only, um, or non-causal, implying just either logical or normative relationships. Models can be cyclic or acyclic, so there's a great wealth of possibilities in, in, in modelling of obesity. Problems start to happen when you start to overlay model upon model. So, for example, quantified models of obesity can only be made operational by overlaying statistical or mathematical models on them. Such overlays form the basis for analysis and inference. So the assumptions made when, for example, an experimental model of obesity is built must be as robust as the assumptions that, that are made when, uh, when, uh, when you uh, try to do statistical analysis. So with respect to statistical models alone, the standard method for evaluating outcomes in clinical interventions, the randomized controlled trial, for example, has known limitations, including statistical ones. So if we just focus on this particular aspect of statistical overlay on models, um, Susan Asman and her colleagues, they've done an analysis of different studies, um, medical studies that use statistical methods in uh, uh, randomized controlled trials, and they found that around half of 50 such studies um, incorrectly used statistical methods. Um, they incorrectly used significance tests for baseline comparisons, more specifically. They also found that methods of randomization and of data stratification, data stratification, were often poorly described, and there was little consistency in use of covariate adjustment. <laughs> John Ioannidis, speaking to statistical practice in scientific research more broadly, um, views most published research to be false on the basis of statistical procedure alone. This is because the probability of a research claim being true depends on, among other things, study power and bias. The number of studies on the same question is also important, and as is the proportion of true to not true rep relationships among the relationships examined in a scientific field. That is, how you build the model, um, the number of variables that you include in the model, um, the sample size that you use, all of this affects the likelihood of, uh, of uh, a research claim being true on the basis of statistical analysis. 
Um, Unidis goes on to say that research findings are less likely to be true when, among other circumstances, the number of studies carried out in a field are few, when effect sizes are small, where there's great flexibility in study design and great flexibility in the analysis and, and outcomes, and also when there's great financial interest and prejudice. It's also a problem when there are more many teams in a scientific field chasing statistical significance. A whole range of non-directly scientific factors that influence the likelihood of a, of a research finding to be true. So you can see there's a whole range of problems with building science on the basis of a lot of very flawed evidence. This gives me cause for concern because uh, um, many aspects of, of uh, scientific practice with respect to statistical overlay onto models uh, needs, uh, needs further serious scrutiny. <laughs> so models of obesity that employ statistics can often be questioned for the reasons given by Susan Sussman, John Ioannidis and, and their colleagues. Scales of analyses and multiple abstractions may also obscure meaning that might be taken from quantitative obesity models. To give an example, the genetics of human population obesity is commonly inferred from variations in the makeup of the genome within a sample of people. So far, so good. Such a sample of people usually varies to some unknown extent in its representativeness of a population. You can't measure everybody. You'd like to, but you can't. It's a sample, and you infer its representativeness from, uh, uh, from, from some other variables, if you can. Inferring obesity-related meaning from such genetic variation involves characterization of this sample of individuals according to obesity phenotypes, such as the body mass index or the waist circumference. Such phenotypes, body mass index or waist circumference, vary in the extent to which they represent risk of disease, of mortality, of poor economic output, for example. And to relate variations in these phenotypes and genotypes, other models, statistical or mathematical, are overlaid, adding abstraction to uncertainty. Statistical and mathematical analysis might represent a convincing narrative of the genetics of obesity, but the meaning of this narrative remains open to interpretation, if only from a methodological perspective. Another abstraction in some forms of obesity model involves the use of animals in experimentation. Before the 1980s, there were many categories of animal model used to examine biological and environmental factors that might contribute to obesity. The exploratory nature of obesity research at that time is reflected in the etiological classification of animal models of obesity at that time. There were neural, endocrine, pharmacological, nutritional, environmental, seasonal and genetic. Most of the early animal models were of obesity causation, while two of them, endocrine and pharmacological, were models for treatment. The uses of animal models in obesity research have changed as dominant ideas about obesity have changed. By the 2000s, they overwhelmingly reflected the genetic and physiological nature. The abstract of, uh, of obesity research, focusing much more on treatment, if you will. The abstract nature of many models of obesity, 
They're created using structural realist approaches, which is common to most obesity sites, usually incorporate statistical models, but they're difficult to translate into everyday practice. This is because such translation involves the deployment of different rationalities, which overlap imperfectly, if at all, from the theoretical approaches in obesity science um, to the practical and formal approaches in obesity intervention and policy. The more abstract a model of obesity, the less open it is to common sense and everyday scrutiny, and the greater the need for translation into common understanding for policymakers, practitioners, and everyday people for them to be able to gain value from it. Abstraction in obesity science has only increased, however, in recent years, as complexity approaches to obesity became possible in the 2000s. Complexity approaches came with, with systems biology and complexification of many different problems of the time, including you know, the ability to be able to quantify things in a way with higher degrees of, uh, of computing power that came from this time. Obesity science only recently began, began to engage in complexity through multi-level modeling, complex systems modeling, and simulation modeling. To the present time, not yet agent-based modeling, although such methods are in place for modeling interactions between nutrients. The study of society, however, is not usually amenable to such structural realist approaches. And this is one reason why different framings of obesity in the biological sciences and the social sciences don't easily overlap or integrate. They have uh, uh, the initial premise for the models can be very, very different. Models of obesity, beyond all this, offer no moral guide to the use of the facts that emerge from their use nor do they necessarily relate to the social realities of obesity production in different populations. Obesity policy relies on the social realities of politics, of institutions, of human behaviour and practice to enact the moral principles that underlie decisions about obesity intervention, as well as the enactment of such intervention itself. To give an example, an econometrics model of obesity production, reduction via taxation might give insight into consumption patterns and human behaviours that might offer possible interventions. Whether or not such intervention through taxation should be enacted rests on assumptions about the moral correctness of such an intervention, in addition to its likely impacts. So it might have an effect, but is it morally acceptable for such taxation if it only indirectly targets obesity more, but more directly increases economic inequality in a population. Alternatively, is it morally acceptable to measure heights and weights of all children in primary school, as in the National, National Child Measurement Programme, um, for it to be used in epidemiological and economic modelling, with the knowledge that this might produce, promote a weight stigma in these children? So, it's not just about the models, it's not just about the overlay of different models, it's not just about the complexification of these models, not just about the translation of increasingly complex models um, into, uh, into everyday practice and intervention, but also about the morality of the, of the application of these models in intervention in everyday life. All of these are issues of concern when thinking about how to construct models of obesity now. Thank you.